and it'll become apparent when we read it, I think. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, hear now the word of God. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was, while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine this event that is typified so often on front lawns of people's homes, shows up in different literature, that, that we would understand why you would have this account in your word, that we might learn things about you and also what your call is in our lives as we read and seek to understand such things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, obviously, we're in this season, deep within this season, where there is a worldwide acknowledgement of the nativity, of the incarnation, of the eternal Son of God becoming flesh, the the birth of Jesus. Though, one is hard-pressed to find one Christmas production of any kind and we, you know, in our house, we, you know, Christmas movies, we want to find a Christmas movie. But it, there's not a Christmas movie that talks about the virgin birth and its implications. It's really hard to find one of those movies. It's usually, you know, a movie about a guy who dated a girl, then moved to the big city, then came back, and they got back together. And... <laughs> it, th- this time of year is, is used, really... To, to springboard into other sentimentalities. Things like the beauty of family. It's all about family. It's all about integrity. It's all about, it's all about thinking positively. Let's take this time of the year to think positively. Or, or you know what, let's enjoy the hominess of our small town and all these types of things. The, the birth of Christ becomes kind of a, a springboard for a variety of Heartfelt interactions. Jesus becomes kind of a ladder to get us on the roof, of this, this roof deck of mundane cheer. And once we're up there, we don't need the ladder anymore. We're up here. We're going to talk about other things. We, we can either ignore the ladder or just kick the ladder down and move on. Now, whether this is aggressively intentional or semi-psychological or subconscious, it is very common to relegate this great birth, this, this time of Emmanuel, God with us, to mythology. I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. You guys in your myths. Your, your myth, it lacks historical 
integrity. It's a fine thought. That story is a fine thought, as the assertion goes. And I can be moved by it. I could be moved by that wonderful story. But it's not real. It's not history. It's an artistic, creative way to explain why things are the way they are. And it can move me to do things that I might not otherwise do. But it is not real history. So goes the argument. But Luke, who was a physician, does not allow for that type of reading of his gospel. If you understand literary genre, if you understand what myth and legend and these types of things are, Luke writes of, quote, eyewitnesses. We have eyewitnesses. He writes, I'm going to give an orderly account He wants his readers to know the certainty of those things in which they were instructed. You see, what what Luke does here in the passage we just read and elsewhere is place his account of these things in the context of undeniable history. Caesar Augustus, Quirinius, Tiberius Caesar, and others They're not Bilbo Baggins, right? They're not Aslan. They're real historical people. These things actually took place. There was a time when Augustus decreed that there should be a registration, a census. It's a historical fact. Verses 1 through 3, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. The census took place while Crinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, the very first thing I want to point out here is not really not germane to the text, but I think it's worth noting that all the world, when, when you're reading the Bible and it says all the world, sometimes it means every last single person, and sometimes it doesn't. This census didn't go out to every last single person on earth. When, if you study the word world in its various forms in the Bible, well, you'll recognize that sometimes, sometimes it's everybody on earth, but oftentimes it's the Roman Empire. From their, from their context, from their thinking, Rome was the entire world. But more to the point, Caesar Augustus decreed that a census should be taken. Now, this passage doesn't go into detail as to why. Augustus, who was um, Julius's grandnephew and kind of adopted son, who was, you know, the, after Julius Caesar, he was the next monarch of, of Rome. And though he may not have been as evil as some of the other Caesars, Nero or Caligula, I don't think it's a stretch to suggest that this census was not designed for the best interest of his citizens. Now, I'm going to go off on a little tangent here with this whole census thing. I, I just want to say, 
in principle, I'm not against the census. And I'm not like, hey, this, what's, I don't want anybody to go, hey, what was the sermon about? And you're going to go, oh, you talked about census taking. But it's here in the text, so I want to talk about it a little bit. A census is kind of almost like a historic, historical form of data mining. Right? That's the way you get information about people in your culture. And I remember a number of years ago during you know, the census that we take in our nation, I was given the long form. You know, there's a couple of different forms. There's a short form, and then there's the long form. And I was given the long form, and as I was reading it, they were asking questions, and I'm like, I'm not sure I want to answer this. And they got very aggressive with me. They started calling all the time, knocking on the door. One guy came all the way into my backyard. He's knocking on my back door. And he got me on the phone. He literally threatened to expose me through the Daily Breeze. He goes, what if I call the Daily Breeze and tell them that you, a pastor, refuse to take the census? I mean, it was really kind of like, you know, unnerving what was going on here. And while I was trying to go look at it, I just, you guys are asking a lot of questions. He went over and over explaining to me that, look at this information is confidential and you're entirely safe giving us that information. I'm, I wasn't an expert on censuses then. I'm not really an expert now, but I knew somebody, one of the elders in our church at the time, who really was savvy in this kind of stuff. So I called him up. I'm like, so is this true? Is they don't use this for any kind of CD purpose? And this elder, some of you remember him, Dan Koblosh, he goes, yeah, that's not entirely true. The Census Bureau was the one who provided the statistical information necessary for the very successful yet highly questionable internment of 110,000 Japanese Americans from 1942 to 1945. They got that information from the Census Bureau. So I got that now in my pocket, and I went and knocked on their door. I'm not recommending this, but I'm like, I went there, I'm like, I wanted the manager to know the way I was being treated. I also have some new information that this isn't entirely confidential. And the whole thing mellowed out, and maybe I made a bigger deal out of it than I, than I should have. But the census that we're looking at here in this passage is the mandate of a tyrant. Okay, that's what's going on here. John Calvin pointed out in the, his, the history of this event that in this census, people gave their names and afterward they paid an annual tax that would have previously been a tithe to God. So, so Rome was saying, look it, you are no longer primarily the people of God, you are now primarily the people of Rome. And that which you would have given to God you now give to Rome. Calvin says Augustus was in effect reducing the Jews to entire subjection and forbidding them to be thenceforth reckoned as the people of God. But we have something here that is a powerful irony because only a student, only a history student can really tell you the order of the Caesars. Only a history student could say, well, 
yeah, you know, Augustus was the great-grandnephew of Julius, and then he was... You have to be a student of history to know these things. You have to be a student of history to know, you know, the history of the census and so forth. But But the census, when this was taken, it was big news. Imagine, right? Imagine today if, uh, you know, if Congress or the president said, look it, in the next census, we're not going to just send something to your house. You need to get in a plane and fly to where you're from. It would uproot the entire nation. But that's what happened here. The entire nation was uprooted. Everybody had to leave wherever they were and make the journey to where they were from. It was big news It was a big deal. Nobody remembers it. You know what we do remember? That Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The unintended consequences of the tyrant. Caesar had a decree. It's a pretty strong word, by the way. I don't know that we have ever used it as a church. I don't think I've ever used it maybe as a coach. Right? I am decreeing this. Get low on defense. <laughs> See, he had a decree, but you know what? God had his own decree. Right. Whose decree wins? <laughs> a decree, if you have been attending the Westminster Confession class, when did God make his decree? In eternity past. And this decree that God had made had been revealed numerous times in the Old Testament, in his his word. And now, as Paul wrote, the fullness of time had come. Now, Daniel's prophetic interpretation of the dream that happened hundreds of years earlier would be fulfilled in the, quote, days of those kings, we read, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Prior to the birth of Christ, these things, this decree of God was revealed. Let it not escape us. Here's my point. That God employed a wicked tyranny in order to fulfill that which was necessary for the salvation of his people. God took a crooked stick and he drew a straight line. William Hendrickson observes, a decree was issued by Caesar Augustus. When the emperor sent out this order, little did he realize that God was using this decree for the realization of his own purpose with respect to the church. What a comforting passage is Romans 8. 28, Ephesians 1.11. I thought we'd go ahead and just look at those passages. Romans 8.28, very popular verse. A lot of people have memorized. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Even the census called by a tyrant. Ephesians 1.11, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who does what? Who works all things out according to the counsel of his will. Everything. Every last single thing. Good news, bad news, 
difficult day, happy day. God never leaves, he's not Elvis, right? He never leaves the building. He's always there. Matthew Henry, I think, very keenly remarks, that which Augustus designed was either to gratify his pride in knowing the number of his people and proclaiming it to the world, or he did it in policy to strengthen his interest and make his governing his government appear more formidable, but providence had another reach in it. What well, was providentially, just so you understand these words, a decree is God making a decision. Providence is God doing it. What was providentially true of Mary and Joseph is no less true of you and your lives. It's not as if God's going, well, here, I was in charge back then. I governed all things back then, but now I'm on vacation. Now I've taken a break. No. Whatever your, whatever your current issue, whatever, whatever your current trial, you need to understand, God's providence has another reach for it. And you know what? That reach is not general. It's very specific. Right? The, the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of my father. Verses two, uh, 4 and 5. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. The Savior couldn't just be born anywhere. God had proclaimed in his Old Testament what his decree was. They had to go to Bethlehem. That word means house of bread. What a proper place for him to be born, who was the bread of life. The bread which came down from heaven. Micah, for those of you who don't know, Micah's in the Old Testament. About four or five hundred years before these events that we're reading of with John the Baptist and Jesus. In Micah 5.2 we read, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Bethlehem, a little place, not big enough to be, you know, among the clans, not a big enough region to be among the, the clans. But, but it was clear enough Remember when Herod wanted to kill all the babies so that his throne would not be threatened? And he got the scribes together. And he goes, I need some information. Where is this baby going to be born? They knew. It's going to be born in Bethlehem. Matter of fact, if you look, you don't have to look it up now, but you can look it up later in John 7:42, talking about the people in general. They all seem to know the baby, the Savior. The Messiah needs to be born in Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was about, depending on how you went, about 80, maybe 90 miles from where they were. 
And Caesar, who was no friend of redemption, unwittingly made sure this trip would be made. He did, Caesar didn't go, look at I know it's going to be tough for you guys, but the virgins with child, we need to get her to Bethlehem. That is not the way he was functioning. Friends, there is, and I, I, I gave it this title because of Paul Helm's book, there is an invisible hand governing the affairs of humanity. Now, we learned in the Magnificat, which was Mary's response to, you know, the fact that she was with child or going to be with child, we learned that Mary, though probably young, a teenager, had a very solid grasp of the things of God. Like she, she got it. Now this journey, 80, 90 miles, you know, pregnant, you know, it's always so romantically displayed, right? Joseph's got his little cane, and she's sitting on side saddle on the donkey, stopping to have picnics on the way. That is not the way it was. This was a difficult, dramatic journey, especially in that condition. But I'll tell you this. When one is confident of divine purpose, like the angel said, look at it. Here's what I'm doing. Here's what's going to happen. Here's what... When you are confident of divine purpose, and I think we all should be confident. I think Psalm 139 applies to all of us. God has numbered our days before there was yet one. He basically got the daytimer out. He got Outlook out and said, here's what your day is going to look like. You can make your plans, but I'm going to direct your steps. When we are confident of God's divine purpose, I think we have greater alacrity when it comes to strength, peace, and contentment. I think, you know, I mean, uh, Joseph, you know, in the, in the account in Genesis, was one of the very few people in the Bible who there's not anything really negative said about. There's only a couple people like that, Daniel, Joseph, obviously Jesus, but you know, Moses, you got a lot of dirt on Moses, a lot of dirt on David. A lot, a lot of these people, you know, they have things showing up on the resume that make your eyebrows go up. But Joseph, Joseph was, was, you know, maybe he didn't exercise good judgment sharing his dream. But Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was lied to about, from Potiphar's wife, thrown into prison, right? And... And so, but he, he does all of this and behaves faithfully through it all. And you look at somebody like that, and you go, what held him through that pit? When his brothers threw him in the pit, and when he was in the prison, what held him? I think it's revealed in Genesis 50, 20, when his father passed away, and God had elevated Joseph to the second most powerful person on the planet behind Pharaoh. And his brother said, are you going to, now that dad's dead, are you going to take us out? Are you going to kill us? And Joseph said, no, because what you meant for evil, God meant for good. He understood, he understood through all those trials that none of this is random. 
We're, we are not the victim of the random happenings of an ungoverned universe. God directs all of it. And I can't help but think when Mary and Joseph, but especially Mary, are on that journey, the knowledge that the hand of God is directing every last single scorpion or snake that they see was not a source of peace and strength and contentment. Wouldn't you love to just be content? The Apostle Paul talks about contentment. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not, not, that I speak, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger. By the way, both of them have their temptations, right? When you have too much stuff, that's got its own temptation. Hunger has got its temptation. He's like, I've learned it, whether plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. He has, he has contentment because he knows who's in charge. He, he knows who's governing, not just his life, all things. Now, what I'm about to say here should not be understood as a license for lethargy or negligence in our affairs. I think that we should, with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, seek to love God, love our neighbors, be good fathers and mothers and children and citizens and church members. I think we get up and we fight the fight. So, so none of this should be kind of this let go and let God, you know, mentality. But in a very ultimate sense, I can't tell you how many times I've take, taken comfort in Proverbs 21.1 that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. And by the way, not just good kings. All kings. So, off they went to Bethlehem because they were both of the lineage of David and that was his town, that was the place of David's birth and we wrap it up with verses 6 and 7. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. It's worded kind of funny. She's not being delivered. She's delivering the baby. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You know, theologians, <clears throat> they like to categorize things. I, and I think it's helpful <clears throat> to have categories. You know, they talk about the humiliation of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ. They talk about, you know, the, the, the passive righteousness and the, or the passive obedience and the active obedience. All right, so just so you understand, this idea of, of the humiliation would be, up, well, it should be obvious, right? That which humbled. Exaltation is every knee shall bow at some point, right? The, the passive obedience of Christ are the things that happened to him. The act of obedience are the things that he did. But if we were to, I think, 
find a biblical term in terms of the humiliation of Christ or in terms of the passive obedience. Because you might want to ask, when did that start? When did that, you know, that movie that came out, I didn't see it because I don't like movies where somebody's playing Jesus. You know, Arnold Schwarzenegger is Jesus. Like, really? I feel like he'd do a better job than some of the Jesuses that I've seen. The passion of the Christ, right? That is the suffering. That's what that means, the suffering. When did that begin? Or if we were to ask it in a more biblical way, when did the emptying of self happen to Christ? Paul says he emptied himself. When did that happen? Well, we're not left to guess. No, to be sure, the the acme, or depending on how you want to phrase it, the nadir of his humiliation or of his passion was on the cross. And that was, that's the ultimate, when he became sin, when he became a curse on our behalf. But what we must understand as we look at this passage we're studying this morning is that his emptying of self began much earlier than the cross. Philippians 2.7, but emptied himself, talking about Jesus, but emptied himself By doing what? By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's when the emptying of self began. We're reading about it right now. We're reading about the emptying of self in that birth. Now, now, what I just read about the emptying of self from that passage in Philippians, Paul's not just bringing it up as a history lesson. It's for you. It's for you, you and me. He's writing it for a reason. Because he's saying, look, it, you, need to, you need to think the way Jesus thought. You need to have the same mind as Christ when it comes to these types of things. You see, the difficulty surrounding the birth of Christ, the, the trip, the birth, the lack of lodging, all these things weren't designed that we might have a quaint Christmas story. Right? Right? I think these things, this idea of what was taking place has a twofold purpose. First and primarily, that we might know the blessed humility of Christ. That we might appreciate what was necessary for the glorious, wonderful, eternal victory, heaven's riches, and eternal peace. That, that we need to know what happened in order for me to have peace. What What does God want me to know that I might be a little bit more exuberant when it's time for worship? That I I might be a little more excited about what, what had to happen in order for me to have peace with God. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, I think, says it pretty nicely. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It wasn't like he was rich and gave you some of his riches while he remained rich. What does the passage say? He became poor. He gave all of it. Even at his birth, he was refused lodging. 
if you've sat through the, the entire Revelation series, you know how I labored the fact that Jesus was born into a hostile environment. He was born at the darkest of times. The, the, the politics were dark. The religion was dark. He even said to the religious people, he said, you know what? If Sodom and Gomorrah, which arguably was the darkest land ever, he's like, if Sodom and Gomorrah saw the things that you've seen, they would repent. You're worse than them. He came into the darkest time imaginable. And he starts with nothing. See, there's a point here. It's not just we have no room in the inn and you, who you get, what actor are you going to get to say, sorry, we don't have no room in the inn. We don't, I mean, we don't know for sure if the guy was just greedy or arrogant or mean or whatever. The point is, there's no place for him. There's no inheritance. He didn't start this game on third base, right? He starts with nothing. Second, we're also to look to him as having that mind. Now we look at that and go, okay, wait a minute. I'm learning about my Savior. I'm learning about his disposition, his mind, because I'm told to imitate it. When it says a mind, it's talking about you need to have the entire character. I'm of the conviction that Christians, I do believe that Christians should have a wonderful and powerful impact upon the world in which we live. I do think that wherever Christians are, whatever land that is, should be a better place because they're there. But that will never happen if we abandon the mind of Christ. In his efforts to improve our, our virtue, Paul, I'm going to read this. I'm not going to talk about it. I'm just going to read. Paul's kind of like, going, here's some things you guys need to work on. And he builds to the incarnation. He has this little passage in Philippians 2, and it builds toward the birth of Christ. Clearly, very pastorally, he's like looking at his congregation going, you guys need to work a little harder at being virtuous people. So, he writes, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. You know, the Bible says some pretty remarkable things about where God is going to take his children. The Bible says wonderful things about where you're going to end up if you believe, if you're one of God's children, you know, with him on the throne and sharing in the riches and all that stuff. But let us be careful, talking about the thrones, to not become the sons of thunder. Remember James and John? 
send their mom to Jesus. Hey, when you're on your throne, can my boys be sitting up there with you? And Jesus is like, you don't, you don't know what you're asking. And they changed over the years. I mean, you talk about God sanctifying them in order to accomplish the great task of redemption. Jesus, in a certain sense, left his throne. Sometimes I feel like we're clutching our thrones. Hey, me first. Yeah, I know that verse says, consider others more important than yourself. But that was written a long time ago, and those people needed the help. Not me. Me first. Well, that is a recipe for disaster on so many levels. If we are to imitate Christ, we recognize that Christ, and again, he remains God forever, but he left his throne. And that's the, the humility we're called to imitate. It's been said that he who made swaddling bands for the sea, Job 38.9, was himself wrapped in swaddling bands. At times I feel like many of us, myself included, we're, cl- we're clutching our, our thrones. We don't have that godly contentment. And this produces little in our own hearts and does nothing but quell the advancement of the kingdom which will later be established by this baby's own blood. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would grasp deeply the nature of the humility of our Savior. That, Father, we might worship you all the more, recognizing the great love with which we are loved and the great price paid that we might have eternal peace. At the same time, may we imitate Christ in this capacity and have his mind. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.